0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now.
1: Hi, I'm Grant Haver, producer of Deep State Radio, and I want to share with you the latest episode of Next in Foreign Policy, the newest podcast on the DSR network. Every other week, Zoe Weinberg and I talk about new ideas in foreign policy and national security with the next generation of experts. We have interviews about all the issues facing the world at the moment, from the war in Ukraine to great power competition with China. But we also explore topics that are a little more off the beaten track, like the impact of pop culture on policy and crypto. Zoe introduces our guest for this week in a few moments, so I won't say too much here other than that it was one of our best episodes yet. So after you listen, subscribe to hear more conversations like this one. I'm Grant Haver. I'm Zoe Weinberg. And this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow.
2: This week, we are joined by Lorraine Ma, an award-winning film producer whose work has been featured in outlets including Vice, CNN, and Al Jazeera. Her newest work, Faceless, is a documentary on the Hong Kong democracy movement and is coming out on Vice in June. Lorraine, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks for having me.
2: How did you originally become interested in filmmaking?
0: I am definitely one of those people who will say that I was an accidental filmmaker. Um, I don't think I ever planned on doing that. So I went to journalism school uh, at Northwestern at Edmund for college, and I'd always been interested in writing, storytelling, all those forms of media, but I don't think I'd ever really entertained film or broadcast or video in any way. But I think I discovered two years into journalism school that I kind of had a knack for finding the truth. I think I was very interested in discovering what the real story was behind what was going on. And we had to pick a track at the time for, you know, what we wanted to focus on. And video and broadcast was was an option that I thought I would never get into or learn if I didn't do it then. So I just kind of went into it and I took a documentary class very randomly just because, you know, like why not? So I had a very uh I had a very religious upbringing and it was funny because I I've met I've since met a lot of filmmakers who kind of have a similar story where they had a very religious upbringing like me and I think I saw the world in very black and white terms of what was right and what was wrong and I remember being in my documentary class and I was watching, my professor was playing a film on the Jonestown situation. I think the documentary was literally called Jonestown, the rise and fall of, of this American cult. And I remember uh, up to that point, I hadn't really thought about what my upbringing and being in a very extreme religious organization had meant. And I remember sitting in that classroom one morning in my junior year and watching that documentary about Jonestown. And, it started off with a couple sound bites, a couple interviews with former members of that cult. And this woman came on camera and she said something along the lines of No one ever tries to join a cult. Like they try to join a religious organization, they try to join a church, they try to join people they really like, and they're trying to do some good in the world. And this woman had obviously left and survived. Um, and I remember sitting in my chair, just like fully frozen and thinking, oh my God, Like, what if this is me? Like, What if I had had this worldview all along in my life and maybe I'm wrong? And I don't think up to that point, I had ever entertained that thought that maybe I could be wrong because I had just sort of categorized life in such black and white terms. And I think that documentary just really shook me in a way where it just introduced the gray area to me that is where all the nuance and where, the, where all the complexity happens. And then I really began to enjoy that process of going out there and meeting subjects and characters and understanding them. Because again, that was like that level of nuance that I never understood in my previous life. Just realizing that a lot of these people in Chicago, I did a lot of reporting with people who had been sex trafficked, people who, you know, were undocumented and in a lot of very difficult circumstances where they just didn't have options, you know, and really challenged my worldview of of that, like, again, the right and wrong and the black and white that I was talking about. And so I think in many ways, documentary really changed me. And over the years, as I've continued to, you know, I, I work in Hollywood for a couple of years, I'm working in a different sector now, but I still produce because I think it just keeps me grounded and it keeps me involved with what I think, you know, day-to-day life is. So yeah, that's a long story to, to how I, I got into documentary.
1: Do you think your... Filmmaking or film producing is meant to explore those gray areas and make us go through that same process? Or is it more, you know, here's my new way of seeing the world. You should see the world this way too?
0: I mean, I think that the best documentaries or the best types of films often have very complicated characters. We like the traditional Hollywood blockbusters because it's very simple. you know you like root for a hero, and like that's it, but real life is not like that. like heroes are very flawed, <laughs> or people you think are heroes are very flawed, and that's what makes them interesting because they're just like us, and we're all people with layers, and we're complicated and I think the most powerful types of documentaries really reveal that, and it's the complication and, and the layers that that make a story interesting and whole. The nuance is something that often is lacking in the news media. In, and sometimes it's the format, right? Like it's how much nuance can you pack it into a tweet and how much nuance can you pack into a short article? But documentary really gives you that form where you can explore the the things that make a person a person, which often includes flaws and, and things that you might not agree with. So you recently finished
2: working on a documentary called Faceless, which is about protesters in Hong Kong would love to hear more about what it was like filming in the midst of a very rapidly evolving political situation and what that meant for you as a producer, but also, you know, all the folks that you were working with on the ground, including your subjects.
0: So yeah, just to take a step back. So my my family's originally from Hong Kong. Um, my parents immigrated to Toronto in the mid 80s um, before Hong Kong was returned to China. So I was born there. But we've always, you know, I've always been very involved with like what was happening there, um, and I went to part of high school, met a boarding school there. I like knew a lot of people who were from there and had connections to the place, and so I was living in London in twenty in the summer of twenty summer of twenty nineteen, and reconnected with a friend who was actually working for the BBC, but also had roots in Hong Kong, and she had started covering some of the protests for the BBC. And I remember we were chatting about this over dinner and I turned to her and I said, Jennifer, who's the director of this film, you literally are just like capturing these stories and giving it to the BBC to directors who like have zero idea of what's happening. Basically, older British white male directors who have no connection to this place. And for me as a producer, I think one of the most important things I think about is who gets to tell the story. And I think it's so important that you get a local voice or someone someone needs to have a reason to get to tell the story. And for me, because Jennifer had all these roots in this place, for me, she was the perfect person to, to actually tell the story. Just not just someone else who was parachuting in and, and capturing it, but truly someone who had an authentic reason behind it. So I was like, hey, if I can raise you some money, will you go do this? And Jennifer had never made a film before, but I, I, I think I just believed in her character and her, you know, the way she worked and, and uh, you know, her, her character as a journalist. And so she said yes, and I was able to raise her a little bit of money. And so she basically quit her BBC job and moved there, and uh, we started from there. So I was actually not on the ground at all for the entire film. Like I was going to grad school. I was I was at Stanford, so I was in the Bay Area. So I was not there. So I I was doing a lot of remote producing, and it was honestly kind of wild because I was in my second year, my final year of grad school, and you know, living in the Silicon Valley, very removed from what was happening. And also because of the time zone difference, I would go to bed and wake up every morning and get a stream of text from the crew being like, Oh, you know, we went out yesterday, somebody got tear gas. And I'm just reading all this later on, like five hours later, and catching up in real time what had happened on the streets with them. And obviously, the protests had gotten more and more violent. And so people and they they were trying to run away and (laughs) and capture the characters differently. So I had to really compartmentalize what was happening and and try to find and all along try to find the resources and 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 support them along the way. So it was quite a wild uh producing experience, I will say. What's
2: behind the name faceless for the film?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. So in the film, all the protesters, most of them, if not all, are wearing masks. And this was actually pre-COVID. And they were wearing masks because a lot of them were being targeted after being out on the street. I think the police would try to identify them and then come after them. And at least at the beginning, there was this fear. And afterwards, we knew that this fear is fully validated and it happened. Also, all the protesters who were going out were wearing masks to to conceal their identity. And they were also wearing black clothing. So everybody would just look identical with black clothes and with a mask on. And so so that that was like the literal version of, of faceless. and. I think the other, you know, more, the other thing we we're touching on was that there was this collective identity that, you know, everybody, there wasn't like one person that was doing this. It was just like a community of people who were rising up and, and trying to, to voice what they wanted um, from the government. And so it touches on this collective identity of, of just a movement of a generation of young people who are coming out to do this. And then also, more practically, we actually couldn't show their face in the film because of security reasons, and we didn't want them to be targeted. So all those layers of what was happening, because of that, we thought it was apt to, to call the film faceless.
2: And it's sort of powerful because, as you said, it was before COVID. And at that point in time, the idea of interacting with people where you can only see you know, part of their face felt, I would imagine, very foreign and jarring. And now that we've had two years of walking around and interacting with people in mass all the time, there's also this like sort of other kind of layer of meaning, which is kind of interesting. Given that your family is in Hong Kong and you have a lot of roots there, did you have concerns about their security and their ability to continue living their lives?
0: Yeah, I think everybody who was involved in the film, the director and and a lot of the crew on the ground, we had this conversation back and forth as to whether we wanted to put our real names on it, because we saw that journalists were being targeted by the government for, for covering what had happened and for just publishing material in the media. And there's been a couple big news organizations that have shut down since then. Um, so we had these conversations back and forth. I think ultimately... Of course, everybody was worried to a certain extent, but we thought, well, we're an independent film, unless we get nominated for the Oscars, which I think we already know has not happened, we're probably going to be okay. The second thing was, we just felt like, okay, if we have the guts to do it, we should have the guts to put our names on it. And we did not know exactly what was going to happen. And and of course, that's definitely something we worry about in the back of our heads. But I think that We were very intent on not self censoring. I think, you know, like self censorship starts when you start being afraid of what might happen. And of course, that's very human and fair. But we just thought, okay, like if we start censoring ourselves now and because of what we don't know will or will not happen, then we might as well just not do this film. So the concern is definitely there. And I think the the director still lives there and we have crew members who still live there. So there's always that thought in the back of our heads, but we also want to, we think that it's important that, that we put our names to it and just, and just release it into the world that way.
1: The Chinese government might clearly see the documentary as a political act. Do you view the documentary, but also your filmmaking in general, as a political act?
0: What do you mean by political act? Define that for me. Yeah,
1: yeah. I was struck in the film, you followed a number of different characters. One of them was labeled the artist because, of course, she didn't use names. And the artist used her art to push back against what was happening, the police brutality, the crackdowns in Hong Kong. Do you view your art in a similar way in that you're using it to push back against corruption, police brutality, censorship? Or do you view your, your work as more as a journalist, kind of we're just reporting the news?
0: Yeah, I think that's a great question. It's funny because um it kind of you kind of touched on whether there is ever unbiased reporting, which I don't believe ever exists because what is that really? Like even the act of reporting, the act of choosing what you want to focus on is an act of bias. So I think that even journalists should just admit that and 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 own that. I think that there are certain like journalistic elements that we hold to. And particularly for the director, she she was a journalist and an investigative journalist. And so there there were were elements of truth. And we took fact checking very seriously throughout the whole film and everything. I think there's definitely a filmmaker's point of view in every film, right? And I think the point of view is obviously, if you look at the film, it's more focused on the voices and the stance of the young protesters, right? We've had people ask us questions as to why we didn't interview anybody in the government, and to be honest we we tried. We had reached out, and um, we weren't able to get any access. um so there's always going to be people who are like, "Oh, why is this not balanced? Like why is no one from the Communist Party speaking and what you know, and I think filmmaking has a point of view, and I think for us, this was told from the point of view of the young protesters, what did it mean to be sometimes born into a British colony that was handed back to China or being born after the handover, but having growing up with this sense that you have these levels of freedom and you have these levels of independence. And then having these things slowly being eroded and taken away from you, like how does that how 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 does that feel? And like what is what does autonomy look like? And what does it feel to kind of confront the Chinese Communist Party in many ways? And and what is that ident what does that identity question mean to, to them as A lot of them talk about how they don't feel like they're Chinese citizens, even though they are ethnically Chinese, right? And and what is that question? And so it's definitely kind of biased in a sense in exploring those questions and their points of view. It's definitely not like a pure act of unbiased journalism because I don't believe that exists.
1: How do you see... Of film, you know whether it's this documentary or or any of the other work that you've done. How do you view success? Like, how do you measure it? Obviously, I would assume, being a documentary filmmaker, you're not focused on commercial success as much as maybe you know the Marvel Cinematic Universe is. But what, what does a successful product look like to you?
0: Getting something done is already a big success. Honestly, when you're coordinating so many pieces, trying to raise money, you know, doing all that. Getting to the finish line is is a big stuff. So I was very proud we got there, and obviously we you know we had a really great distributor. The film is sold. It's going to air in Vice. Like in terms of the commercial side, particularly for a documentary, I think I'm very happy with the outcome. I think that oftentimes, what is most satisfactory for people for filmmakers is really when you show the film and you screen it and your audience members you see that it, it resonates and it, you see that it. Changes something in their minds or it moves them in some way. I think the sort of emotional resonance there, you can't really peg a dollar sign to it or how much, what that value is. But I think that's, that's the most powerful thing when, you know, you realize together that, wow, like the audience also feels the same way or, you know, there is some, some sense of shared connection there. And I think for me on a personal level, my parents are actually very pro China in their political stance which I understand because they've had their businesses there and you know, have really benefited from the economy taking off in the past three years. And I think for me, what was really deeply satisfying was when I, I showed the film to my parents and my mom afterwards, we talked about it. And she said, wow, like you actually changed my mind on some things. And I think it's that, it's that. Like on a personal level, for me, it's like, it's so important because that's my mom. But you know, from an audience level, it's that same thing. I think the hardest thing to do is truly to change someone's mind. And when you can like do that through, through art and through emotion, that's something that's deeply gratifying.
2: So you also produced a film uh, recently called 10 Years Thailand, which is a multi-part film in which the directors imagined a future dystopian version of, of Thailand. That film is not a documentary. And I'm curious, To hear a more about sort of the backstory of the film generally and how you came to work on it, but also whether you feel like there's certain things that you're able to do in you know a fictionalized storyline versus a documentary, and where you sort of feel like you have more freedom and more
0: constraints. So this actually also came about through a Hong Kong team of filmmakers, which I met when I was working at Fox. I met the filmmakers of this original film called 10 Years, which was a Hong Kong dystopian fiction film that was really controversial and made a lot of money in the box office. At the time, the crackdown was not as severe, so it was still allowed to play and you know they made a lot of money and the filmmakers approached me and I think initially were interested in figuring out whether they could get like a, a big studio involved to adapt this film in other countries. Didn't happen, but I, I joined this I joined this as an independent producer together with another small a production company. So 10 Years Thailand came about because the original filmmakers were interested in replicating this format of a political dystopian thriller across different countries. So we actually made a 10 Years Thailand, a 10 Years Japan, and another 10 Years Taiwan. The Taiwan did really well. We went to Khan and it won a bunch of awards and, and it did really well. That particular project came about because at the time this was I think around 2016 the Thai king at the time king um Bhumibol was quite ill and um he had been in reign for 70 years I think or uh, around that time so he he was a very long reigning monarch and he was very beloved um in the country by by a lot of people and there were a lot of concerns about as to what would happen after he passed because his son, who was heir to the throne, was um, just a, I don't know how to describe him.
1: <laughs> I will describe him as uh, a, I don't, I don't know if I would say terrible, but he lives in Germany and has really cracked down on dissent in Thailand and is, is very much a, a schmuck in the, in the, as the kindest way of describing him.
0: Yep, that sounds accurate. So so there are a lot of concerns as to what would happen because people didn't respect him in the same way. I think he also had like a lot of wives and a lot of children, just a lot of things happening. So it just felt like there was like fertile ground for something interesting to be made. What was also interesting is Thailand has a law called Les Majestés, which means that you cannot say anything negative about the royal family, or you could be imprisoned. And I think the scary part is other people can tell on you. So if Zoe today, you said anything bad about the royal family, I can go to the police and be like, I heard Zoe say this. And it's used in very murky ways because basically if I had a business deal with Zoe and, or I was like competitors with Zoe, I could like go and say that I heard. It's hearsay. So like no one can prove it, but you'd be in trouble. It was like a lot of complicated elements. And so we found a couple really famous Thai directors who were interested to to work on this. One being uh, Api Pong, who has won a bunch of awards at Cannes and is a very famous A-list director. And basically, they all came together and thought of what Thailand would be like in ten years' time. That's basically the premise of the film. And because of the political situation, parts of the film are told kind of science fictiony. Like there are parts of the film where the characters are are animals. One of my favorite stories in the snippets. Uh, one of the favorite snippets is um, a world in which there are human humans and there are humans with cat heads. Amazing CGI done in that segment. But um, basically the whole premise of, of that was the human was trying to not be de- get detected by the human with cat heads. And it's, if you think about it, there's a lot of political implications as to, you know, we're trying to, to weed out the, pe- the people who think differently from us is essentially what it is. And sort of the fear around it. And so because of the creative side of this movie, I thought was really well done by the directors. And it really resonated. And funny enough, in 2017, I think a year before the film was released, the king passed away. And because of all the political situation around that, the film couldn't be played in Thailand for a while. And there were actors who got into trouble for being involved. And then I think in 2020, there were a lot of protests happening in Thailand as well around trying to push back against this new king and trying to get reform in the in the royal family a lot of protests around the world in 2020 have been disrupted because of covid i'm interested to see what's going to happen after covid goes away but um yeah so this film is, is is out there
2: you mentioned that that the film couldn't be shown in thailand for a while and I, and i've found myself wondering as as you talk both about ten years thailand and also tasteless how you think about audience and how that sort of plays into the way that you craft a film. I mean, a lot of your films have centered on subjects in Asia and Southeast Asia. And I'm curious if you think of your audiences as being primarily located in those places, or is it largely for Western audiences that are maybe not familiar with what's going on, um, you know, sort of on the ground in, in Hong Kong, for example, like how do you, how do you think about who the audiences?
0: I don't think I think about, well, on a commercial sense, we are always making things to, to sell to the money is where the big players are at. And oftentimes that means, you know, in relation to, to Western audiences, like the streamers of the world, that's all connected. And there's a ton of interest, thankfully, in, in what's happening in Southeast Asia and, you know, in Asia in terms of politics, particularly in relation to China. Yeah. So the interesting thing is faceless cannot be played in Hong Kong as well. Like that's in China. So yeah, 10 year Thailand had a lot of trouble getting uh, being played in Thailand. And I would imagine that this would be a case I was exploring something with some filmmakers in Myanmar. And, and that's probably the same, the same thing is going to happen. That's a really, really interesting question. Like who's the audience? And I think about it. And I, I mentioned this earlier, but there was this film called Winter on Fire that was released in 2014 about the protests in Ukraine. You know, we could ask the same question, like, was this made for for the people of Ukraine? In some ways it is. But this film really, at the time in 2014, Hong Kong was going through a first wave of protests called the Umbrella Movement. And a lot of activists on the ground organized community screenings of this Ukraine film, uh, Winter on Fire, and showed it at a lot of, you know, community theaters and organized a lot of community screenings. And I think this film inspired a lot of people to think about, okay, like, how do we take action and tell the government what we want? And, you know, when there is a political power that's in place, and they are trying to limit our levels of self-expression and freedom, like, what can we do about it? And it really, it's hard to chart whether something directly impacted the outcome of, you know, of the Hong Kong protests, for example. But I will say this Winter on Fire documentary had a huge influence. So I think when we, when I think about audience, it's, this is a bad answer for a business. When you're, when investors ask you, who are you trying to build a product for? Cause you are not supposed to say everyone, <laughs> but I think oftentimes for a documentary, you're really trying to think about the audience will come and find you the audience, will, the audience who is they're like looking for something because like I said, it creates resonance for them. And so there are so many countries in the world where people face the same issue of, you know, of not being able to express themselves, and having to push back against an authoritarian government. And so oftentimes, we've seen that these are the people who come and they're interested in these type of films, because they find resonance in it.
1: Do you see yourself as finding a niche in Southeast Asia as a market for creating political art, whether it be fiction or, or nonfiction, or do you see yourself more as focusing on censorship? Because it seems like Hong Kong, Thailand, potentially Myanmar, all have very similar issues. I know that's hard to like decouple since the issue is systemic in the region, but but how do you think about that?
0: I think because of my like background and the experience with Hong Kong, it's hard to not think about China and be very interested in what the Communist Party is up to and what the authoritarianism means for the rest of the region. And so I definitely, and as I said, like, I think who gets to tell the story is so important. So am I going to go and produce a film about, I don't know, somewhere in France? No, like, I don't think that's ever going to happen because that has nothing to do with me. And I don't think I'm the best person to tell the story. But I think there are so many interesting stories that are coming out from that region because of China's behavior I mean, what's going to happen to Taiwan in the next couple of years? We don't even know. So I definitely think I have a deep interest in continuing working with filmmakers who are covering those stories um, in the region, particularly in relation to to the Communist Party, to regimes that are very authoritarian. So there's definitely that. But generally, I I love any investigative work. And I, I still have a community of filmmakers that I'm connected to in Chicago who are doing a lot more investigative stories. That are domestic and focused on the criminal justice system in the U.S. and stories that are related to to Asian Americans, um, and so that's definitely an area that that I'm I'm also working on. But broadly speaking, um, yeah, the China stories will never end.
1: <laughs> I know you sort of have a, a vested interest in the outcome in Hong Kong specifically. When I watched the documentary, I am not ashamed to say that I was brought to tears multiple times, and it really made me think that the U.S. and the West broadly did not do enough to support the protests. How do you feel that the United States and the West broadly responded? And, you know, seeing what has been the result in Hong Kong, what do you think maybe could have been done differently to keep a free and democratic Hong Kong?
0: It's a very tough question because I think at the time there were, the Communist Party was trying really hard to push this narrative that there were all these foreign powers that were trying to be involved and to influence the outcome was happening. And they really planted a lot of fake news around like the CIA being involved and like all this stuff. And, and on the other hand, protesters were taking like British flags, American flags out on the streets. That really enraged people in like my parents' generation because they, they were the ones who were like, you have no idea what happened during the colonial era. And now you're just trying to invoke these Western powers, like for what reason. So there's a lot of complicating factors that were going on then. And ultimately, I think China is such a big superpower now. So I don't really know what the West could have done more to stop this from, from escalating. I think it's definitely not a strict parallel, but. Even with the Uyghur situation in Xinjiang, like I think you know, different countries in the West have been like, "Hey, like they have tried to issue statements, they have tried to you know speak about it." But ultimately, I think it also touches on issues of autonomy, uh, of 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 sovereignty and autonomy, right? It's like if there are certain things in in another country that's happening, how much can you do as a foreign country to? to get involved, right? And, and that's that touches on deeper issues of foreign policy and, and, and sovereignty, and, and that's complicated. So I, I don't think I have an easy answer for that.
2: So video of all of these of political movements of conflict is obviously very, very powerful. And the war in Ukraine appears to be one of the first conflicts that has been as heavily documented on TikTok as as probably any others. And TikTok, by the way, is obviously also a very censored platform and in lots of different ways. But I wonder how you think about the role of both social media, you know, YouTube, TikTok, et cetera, um, in shaping collective understandings of what's happening in Ukraine or I, I would say sort of more generally, you know, on battlefields as they unfold in real time.
0: I mean social media has been so powerful in capturing and facilitating a lot of a lot of movements and and also on the other hand like documenting war. I think I remember when the Arab Spring happened, I was in college and I think Twitter was so instrumental in you know helping people on the ground like communicate and organize and facilitate what was going on. So that's definitely citizen journalism, you know, version one, and now, you know, video has also taken off in a way that you can capture what is really going on. On the flip side, fake news has also gotten really powerful. And, you know, the way that the other side can manipulate materials and show people um, a different narrative has gotten really powerful, too. So I think it's, it's really a brave thing and a powerful thing when people on the ground are trying to capture the truth, I think this the sad thing that i I am starting to see and, and keep in mind is how that can also be weaponized by the other side. I think citizen journalism definitely has so much power, but it also as as technology is is developing and as the years go by, I'm doubly definitely, definitely seeing difficulty surmounting like on the other side too.
2: You mentioned before that um there's bias in all in all journalism in any storytelling, you know, I I would imagine whether it's a citizen or or a reporter. But it seems to me like one of the challenges with all of this content that's being both created and consumed on places like TikTok, there's just very little context for the user, so or or for the consumer. Whereas if a documentary is produced, at least ideally, there's some form of transparency or accountability about the filmmakers and maybe what perspective they have and you know, there you, you assume there's a certain amount of fact checking that's going into it. And, you know, this isn't really a question. It's more, more of a response to, to what you were saying before. But, um, you know, I think as soon as you're scrolling through videos on TikTok, you lose all of that context. And sometimes it's very hard to know even sort of spatially or, when, or historically, like when did this occur and where is it geographically, et cetera. And so to me, that feels like a really meaningful difference between a kind of curated documentary that's been produced or even like a news segment where you sort of trust that the BBC or, or CNN is like presenting a video from a, from a certain place and are they're identifying it correctly. Whereas on any of these social media platforms, it can be very, very hard to do that in real time.
0: Yeah, I think that you touched on something that's really important, which is context. Whenever we are making a, a film about something We spend so much time as filmmakers thinking about how much context we need to include, because you obviously cannot educate someone from zero to a 100. You know, you can't give them the entire Wikipedia page. You assume that if someone's watching something, they have some interest in this topic, so they know the basics. But then, like, how do you build it up so that they understand, like, what's at stake here? And I think oftentimes what you see, when you're only reading the news or, or understanding the news from short videos on TikTok, or as you say, like... You're only seeing the juiciest thing of like for example like something exploding or like someone beating someone up right and it's all these like acts of violence like there's a line in broadcast tv which is whatever bleeds leads so people are just incentivized to to make that kind of content to, to capture your attention so and i think while that is that consists elements of the truth it's not the whole picture and so how do you how do you like educate people to a level where they understand, as we go back to what we first talked about, the nuance and all the different things are at stake here. And it's not just so black and white. And, and that's a challenge that I think as, as storytellers and journalists and filmmakers we all face because it's so easy to tell the black and white story. I think that one of the reasons that the Russia story is, is being covered so much in the news right now, because that is, in some sense, a pretty black and white story. It's very easy for the American media to say, Russia's a bad guy. But like, is it that easy for the American media to tell you about Libya, to tell you like when American involvement is kind of in the gray area that that maybe America's not a good guy here? I think that the role of, of journalism and media often you have to ask yourself like, yeah, like what does the audience want to know? But also like, what should the audience know? And there's a balance there. You don't want people to not read your watcher stuff because they're bored and they don't want to be lectured. But at the same time, there's a level of responsibility to tell people what they should know. So, so striking that balance, I think, is really key to making you know quality nonfiction work.
1: I think it's really interesting that you know you started by saying that context is so important, and uh, you know social media just collapses context in so many ways, and it acts as an intermediary of your work. So, like you have been able to put out these documentaries and the films and of course you you work with people and i'm sure vice had some feelings about it but they're producing and showing your work whereas on social media you know the algorithm or people at tiktok are really defining what you see and the nameless faceless corporations in silicon valley are are changing not only what is incentivized to be produced but also what audiences can can consume but I'll get off my soapbox and ask you, what is a story or a film that you haven't told yet that you'd like to work on?
0: Wow, that's really proprietary information. I'm kidding.
1: <laughs> I was going to say, if anyone has a pitch for her, email her at...
0: Well, there's currently a couple of stories that I'm exploring um, with, with filmmakers I know. I think I'm at a stage of, in my career where... I'm primarily producing and working with people that I've worked that I've worked with before in certain stories and I'm like very invested in their success. So whatever they do next, I will back them. Yeah, I think there are a couple leads that are sort of in that China related, you know, like type of bucket. And there are some things that I, I mentioned earlier that are around like Asian Americans. I know I'm giving you very vague answers and the reason being, I think the directors won't want me to tell their whole story. Don't want me to sell their full story yet. And uh, yeah, there, there are a lot of, I'm very excited about this, uh, about investigative journalistic films. I think there is, there were a couple really good ones that have come out over the years. But I really think that when journalists, when journalists come to come together and, and really put in all their investigative powers into a film that is often amazing product. So yeah, I'm very, in, I'm very interested in that genre specifically, and I know that's very broad, but that's sort of, I think, the broad topic of, of what all these different projects that people uh, have been kind of talking to me about are, are about.
1: So, listeners, watch this space for uh, <laughs> some, some great future work. But with that, let's move to our final segment where we each bring something that we're following because of the excellent documentary work that Lorraine has. Put out. We're gonna focus on each giving a documentary that we suggest that you take a look at. I'll go first. So I wanted to talk about a really interesting documentary called The Price of Everything. It's about art and the art market and how the two interact. I think it's easy to think that in creative fields, the best stuff always rises to the top, but it's really far from the case. Moneyed interests and only shape what's available, but also what art we value as a society. And for me, it's really made me question how much I shape my own taste in art versus how much of it is shaped by availability, price, and elite sentiment. And I think that it's worth exploring your own sort of media consumption, both journalistically and also creatively to you know find for yourself what is and is not valuable, like this podcast. But with that, Zoe, what do you want to endorse?
2: I want to plug a documentary that came out uh, a couple of years ago. I think it was in 2020 called Boys State. Uh, and the film follows about a thousand teenage boys who are gathering in Austin, Texas to attend this program. It's almost like a camp called Boys State in which they come together to build a representative democracy and and government. And they all are in different different political parties and they have to navigate the challenges of of organizing those parties, nominating people, achieving consensus, campaigning, and so forth. And it's both a fascinating portrait of American politics and also of teenagehood and and what it's like to to be thinking about political office when you're a teenage boy in 2020 in the United States. I was not familiar with Boys State as a phenomenon before seeing the film. Our very own Grant Haver once attended Boys State. So maybe in a future episode, we'll get him to talk about it. But it's a fascinating story.
1: Yeah, I I would say that the only only thing that I recall as now I've aged much past the members of Boys State is that it was one of my first experiences with college campus food. And so being able to have as much ice cream as you wanted was a true game changer in my life.
2: All the important Um, stuff.
1: But Lorraine, what do you want to suggest to our listeners?
0: So I will first endorse both of the films you recommended. They're both excellent. I love Voice Date. I watched it a couple of years ago, and it was so, I really liked it. So I already mentioned Winter on Fire, so I will mention this other film, which is not a political film at all. This documentary called Dick Johnson is Dead, it's, I believe, still on Netflix. It's made by one of my favorite documentarians, Kristen Johnson, um, Kristen is a cinematographer. And she was actually one of the first female cinematographers um, who was admitted into the whatever club of cinematographers that previously only had men in it in, in Hollywood. And Kristen Johnson was uh, one of the cinematographers of Citizen Four, which is a documentary that won an Oscar a couple of years ago. Uh, it's a documentary on Edward Snowden. She's a phenomenal filmmaker, and she made this film about her father, who was aging and starting to was in the early stage of of um, Alzheimer's, and it's a very creatively done film. In it, she stages scenes of her father dying, and her father is a very happy participant in all these experiments. So he'll be like walking down the streets of New York, and an AC will fall on him, that kind of thing. But they like have these little experiments for them to really explore what it means for him to die and. I've never watched a documentary and laughed and cried so hard at the same time. So I really thought it was so moving and uh, so beautifully done. So I would highly recommend it.
1: With that, thanks for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Initiative and is a proud member of the DSR Network. Please be sure to rate, review and subscribe so that more people can find our show. You can follow me online at Grant Haver, follow Zoe at Z Weinberg and follow Lorraine on her IMDb page. If you're a foreign policy professional under 40 and want to be featured on the show, be sure to follow the link in the show notes. This week's episode is brought to you by the only name you trust in craft cocktails. That's right, it's Molotov. Molotov cocktails are enjoyed by freedom fighters from Hong Kong to Ukraine. So get them wherever fine spirits are sold. Join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy.